What's up, y'all? It's your man, Stephen Bartle, coming at you with another edition of Bartle's Breakdown. I'm your host, and I'm pleased to be joined by a friend and a colleague today, Eric Collins. Eric, how you doing today, my man? Friend, first and foremost, man, doing great. Glad that uh, we're actually killing the time by doing something productive. This is good. No, man, I wanted to get you on, Eric, because I, you know, I know your background, I know your story. People in Chicago kind of know a little bit about your story, but I think you've got some fantastic turns and opportunities and things like that that we'll get into. And, uh, you know, your perspective on things, I've always enjoyed it. You've always, always kept me cracking up. So I think, I think our viewers enjoy what you have to say. Um, so you, you grew up in Cleveland. Were you, were you a born sports fan or did you kind of, how'd you pick it up there? Yeah, I'm from uh, east side of Cleveland, Cleveland Heights, Ohio, which is like the first suburb just outside the city. Used to take me about eight minutes to get down to Cleveland Stadium and watch the Indians play. I remember vividly when I was a kid, because uh, my mom was a huge sports fan. My dad, none at all. My dad didn't know anything about anything. I could ask him his favorite Cleveland Brown right now, and the only one he could name would be Jim Brown, the history of the Cleveland Browns organization. So that's kind of the level of sports fan he was. Okay. But my mom was totally different. My mom would watch and listen to every single thing. If the Indians game or the Cavaliers game wasn't playing on the radio, you know, that was just breaking news. That just never happened. She always knew the score at any given moment of, of any of the Cleveland sports teams' games. And I remember we always had dinner every night at 6 o'clock. And no matter what we were doing, you drop everything, had dinner together at 6 o'clock. And I used to always cross my fingers and hope, hope, hope that when dinner was done at 6.35 and we're clearing the tables, that my mom would say, Eric, let's go down the ballpark with me. And that would happen probably 15 times throughout the course of the summer. Wow. So we'd leave our house at 6.45 and we'd still get there when the National Anthem was just getting finished being sung. It would take us 20 minutes to get down, find a parking spot, get our tickets, and go hang out in the stands. And that was the epitome of my ideal summer day, is just going down to an Indians baseball game uh, randomly 15 times throughout the course of the summer. That was my love for sports. It all started with baseball and the Cleveland Indians. Wow. So... What, what made your mom such a sports fan, Eric? Did, did she ever explain why she was so into sports? My mom was from uh, a dairy farm in uh, Washington, Iowa, and she had two older brothers who were a lot older than she was, and she idolized them and wanted to do whatever they were doing, and they were big baseball fans, St. Louis Cardinal fans, and uh, she just picked up her love for it there. And uh, even though she met my dad, who was kind of a – a boring fuddy-duddy, you know, and she still kept my her sports thing going on and passed it down to me. My sister didn't get it. My sister has no idea that she couldn't name the three sports teams that exist in Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> Good stuff, man. I forgot to tell you guys, Eric is the play-by-play -play, uh, commentator for the Charlotte Hornets television. So Eric is one of the few uh, voices of the NBA, and I just want to get that out there. You can see his Hornets paraphernalia there. So Eric, you're growing up in Cleveland, um, you know, obviously a Cleveland sports fan. You've had your share of ups and downs. I'll, I'll say that politically correct. Um, what was it? Where was the time in growing up? Did you know that you wanted to be a play by play and uh, uh, play by play um, commentator? You know what? I always knew that this is what I wanted to do, but I never really had the confidence to kind of actually tell people that this is what I wanted to do. Mm. Because, you know, when we were kids, Steve, you got to remember, you know, growing up a Cleveland Indians fan, you couldn't make a living doing Indians baseball because they would only have, I guess Chicago was a little bit different because WGN would do so many games. But from my experience growing up in the 70s and the 80s, 
you know, there was only maybe 20 games of the entire 162 that were televised for the Indians every year. And for the NBA, maybe there was probably 12 Cavalier games uh, that were televised. Now, there always was the radio announcer, but a career just doing nothing but play-by-play just didn't – it was had a better chance of, like, you know, landing on Pluto. You know, it just didn't seem anything realistic at all. So I, I didn't want to stay kind of in the same world. I, I got my start by going to school and trying to get into journalism through the news background. That's kind of where I started. And that's actually where we first met back in the, in the early 90s, is you and I were both trying to figure out our way into the business. And kind of obviously you were doing a lot of sports stuff, but I was more of a news reporter type of thing. So that was kind of like my fail safe until I realized that news was just a horrible existence and it was really hard. And I said, you know what? I love sports. I got a brain that just needs to be fueled by sports at all times. And that's when I made the switch and eventually I've never looked back starting in 1996. Okay, so now you, you're growing up in Cleveland. You're thinking about going to college. You choose St. Lawrence. Why? The only school I got into. I was, uh, I applied to three schools. I don't know what I was thinking. I applied to Stanford. I didn't get in. They laughed at me. I applied to some small school in upstate New York or upstate uh, Maine called Bates. Which oh, I've heard of Bates. Yep. Yeah, Brian Gumbel went there. And I didn't get in there either. So the only school I got into was St. Lawrence. And uh, I figured, why not? And it was my sister's older than me, and my sister's smart. And I knew what colleges were and what they weren't. And I knew the St. Lawrence was a good school, and I could have fun there. And uh, so I just decided on the scene. I went to St. Lawrence and spent four years there and changed my life. Okay. In what way? And, and give, give people a sense of where St. Lawrence is and kind of uh, how it is. Is it, is, it, is it a smaller college? Is it bigger? Kind of St. Lawrence is about 2,000 people. So oh, it's wow. city big. It's a lot smaller than my high school was. I went to a big uh, public high school, very diverse public high school, Cleveland Heights, 50-50 black, white, with a whole bunch of Jewish kids. And it was a, it was a melting pot is where I kind of grew up. And then I went to St. Lawrence, which is in the, the nether reaches of northern New York. We're talking close to Ottawa and Montreal. Mm-hmm. It doesn't get colder than that. Super small and very homogeneous. It was just a bunch of white kids, uh, homogeneous uh, and it was totally different than what I experienced. And it probably would have freaked me out, and I probably would have transferred, but I happened to find three of the best friends in the world who were still three of my best friends. We're all sports aficionados. Um, we love the same type of humor. Uh, we both love the same type of intellect. And they've been my lifelong friends, and that's how I kind of say it changed my life. I learned how to deal with these people who I really didn't have much contact with when I was growing up. And so I found myself in a totally foreign environment, and I was able to kind of make my way through it because of these three friends who are still my friends today. Wow. Now, Eric, where are your friends located in the New York area? Did you guys just kind of spray out once you left St. Lawrence? Uh, we all kind of spread out, but now they're all back in New York area. One's in Albany, one's in New York, actually two are in New York, and I'm down here south. So we've actually never lived anywhere close to each other since we graduated, but they're still all near and dear in my life. And we're on text chains every single day. And when they find something funny, they send it to me, and when they find something interesting, whatever, we, we all share it. And a, a good part of my play-by-play is just taking the texts and the thoughts that we have kind of just back and forth. And that's what I, they say it's supposed to be broadcasting. You know, you and I, what we do is we broadcast. But at the end of the day, it's really not that broad. I'm actually thinking about a core group of three of my best friends, and I'm broadcasting to them. Mm-hmm. Because I 
that's kind of my thought, my thought process is what would make them excited because that's what makes me excited and that's what brings out a part of my brain that I think makes our broadcast different than others is I'm not interested in kind of talking what, you know, they're saying in Nebraska or, you know, in Chillicothe, Ohio. I want what a certain group of people, hardcore people want to hear. And I think I can bring that. You know what, Eric, that, I, want to, I want to circle back to that. that. You made a great point. And a lot of times we get people who are interested in getting into the business. They want to get into sports media business. You just said something was very critical. You said that you keep your three friends in mind when you are approaching your style in terms of calling a game. Uh, why is that important to you? Well, I just think you can't be everything to everyone. And I think when you try and do that, you just become like everyone else. And I think that that's, to me, that's boring. You know, seeing when you and I were kids, you know, we were watching Keith Jackson and Jack Whitaker and Kurt Gowdy, and those guys were different, you know? They weren't cookie cutter. And I think right. that somewhere at some point when television exploded and when cable exploded and when we had all these women's sports and youth sports and all of these other, you know, non-Olympics or Olympic sports, I think we decided we, we needed all these broadcasters and there's these schools that just decided, you know, like these cookie cutter broadcasters that would come out and everyone thought they needed to say the same thing at the same time uh, with the same tone of voice. And I don't look like every other broadcaster. I don't sound like every other broadcaster. I don't have the same life experience as every other broadcaster. And to me, I just want to sound like me. And so I broadcast how I want to hear a game uh, and how I speak a game normally. And that's with my three best friends. You know, when I get together with my buddies and we're sitting on the couch in a basement or we're sitting in a bar and just talking about the game, this is the way that we talk. Mm -hmm. And this is the terminology that we use. Yep. And to me, I'm interested by that. And I'm hoping that other people are interested by that as opposed to me just saying, bouncing ball right side, picked up by the second baseman over the first baseman. That does nothing for me. I want to do it my own way. And by using my friends as a knowledge and sounding board, mm -hmm. that helps me get into that frame of mind. For those that are wanting to go into the business, that, that is some of the best information and uh, wisdom that you're going to hear in terms of you're talking to somebody that's at the highest level of his profession in the NBA as a play-by-play -play, uh, commentator, and he's giving you some specific insight, so don't lose that. All right, so you, you graduated St. Lawrence. Did you go right to Syracuse and get your master's, or was that later? I did. I did. I knew that uh, all, everyone in my family, my mom, my dad, and my older sister, they all have advanced degrees, and that was just something that was kind of expected in my house. Okay. And uh, – to be perfectly honest with you, I was not exceedingly motivated to kind of go get a job. I, I kind of knew I was in a sweet spot in my life that, you know, I didn't have a lot of responsibility and I, there were grants, you know, and I was a smart enough guy that I was able to kind of play the system and, and, and get a lot of my graduate school paid for. Mm. So I went straight to Syracuse and that's where I kind of met some people who were like me and who wanted to get into the television world. And uh, that was my first step after leaving undergrad was the Syracuse thing. And I usually don't like to tell people it's, I hope there's no one in Syracuse sees this, but <laughs> I went to Syracuse, but I don't consider myself a Syracuse broadcaster. I'm a St. Lawrence guy. I'm a Cleveland Heights guy. Yes, I went to Syracuse and Syracuse has been good to me because it's been great to network and I met a lot of people over the years, but the Syracuse brand of, of a broadcaster to me 
to me, that's one of the things that's wrong with the business nowadays is you just can't have the same type of person from the same exact background call all of these games. It needs to be different. It needs to be all of these different minds and different thought process and different ways of life to call games. That's what it used to be. And I feel like we kind of lost that. Great point. And it's funny that we've lost that, Eric, because we have so many more opportunities, it seems. Uh, you talk about women's sports, youth sports, the Olympic sports, which you are, are quite involved in. We'll get to in a second. But uh, I, I like what you're saying. Very well said. Uh, so you, you leave with a master's degree uh, from Syracuse. Did you come right to Chicago or were there some stops in between? I went right to Chicago. Usually when you finish and you want to get into television, as you know, you know, you can either go to a small market if you're lucky enough for someone to give you a job and kind of learn by making your own mistakes. I decided that I wanted to go to a big market and I wanted to just get a job somewhere on the ground floor mm -hmm. and learn from other people who actually knew what they were doing, you know, and actually build contacts through that. And, uh, it wasn't easy. I waited two and a half years. Uh, this is back in the early 90s. So we're talking old school handwritten letters and typed letters and snail mail and phone calls and uh, <laughs> leaving messages on answer machines. And, but I, this is when you came into my life. You know, you and I would go to social events where there were social networking events and we would meet people and, you know, pass out cards and You'd follow up the next day with a letter saying, hey, it's great to meet you. If there's ever a chance we can get together, I'd love that. And after about two and a half years, that paid off into an opportunity um, as a low-level, non-union field producer at uh, WMAQ, which is the uh, NBC affiliate in Chicago. Uh, a couple of guys took interest in me, Warner Saunders, who was the biggest mentor I've ever had in my life. Uh, Art Norman was big in my life. Um, but they brought me in and I was in the news department and every single day I would just show up and they, it's amazing how much work there is for someone who's willing to go out and do it. And the assignment editor would say, Eric, Mayor Daly is talking. We need you to go get some sound. So I'd run out with a veteran photographer and I'd go out and stick my microphone in the pack and there'd be Paul Meineke and mm -hmm. Joe Walters and all these other great you know, producer reporters over the years in Chicago doing their work and I was in this mix watching them and learning from them and then we had downtime because it's TV there's always downtime in TV yep. Yep. and I would pull someone aside Derek Blakely aside and say hey why'd you ask this question or you know why did you phrase it this way or what were you thinking about when you shot told your photographer to get this piece of video and it was amazing how much I learned in just one year of being in a newsroom and having access to all of these smart people who were at the top of their profession. Yeah, but see, you were smart enough, Eric, to ask questions and humble yourself. A lot of, a lot of people don't, they don't want to go that route. And so I, I commend you uh, for doing that. So where in the process did you get a chance to do, uh, were you with, working with the Bulls? Well, that came later. See, after I was at, uh, at Channel 5 for a year, I was still on the news track and I was going to be a news reporter. And uh, I thought it was going to kind of change the world and, you know, right the wrongs of the world. Uh -huh. And after about a year, Warner Saunders, who was my mentor, he was the main anchor at Channel 5, and just an absolute brilliant, brilliant, dear man. Um, he wrote me a note and put it in my mailbox, and it said, uh, young eagles must learn how to fly. And actually, I still have it right over there, a little note. And uh, that meant I was no longer allowed to work for him anymore, and I needed to go out and get my own job. 
and basically he needed to replace me with someone else. His big thing was, Eric, don't just jump over a fence, but bring someone over a fence with you. Mm. So I, he had already jumped the fence, and he brought me over with him, and he was looking to bring over someone else. So it was my, my turn to leave. So because I had Chicago on my resume, and because I had you know, spent a year doing all of this wonderful stuff at the MC affiliate in Chicago, all of a sudden I became very marketable, and I was, it was relatively easy for me to get job opportunities to be a reporter. Okay. So I got offered jobs in Rochester, Syracuse, Champaign, um, and I want to say like Augusta, Georgia. And I chose Rochester, New York, because it was the biggest market, and it was actually relatively close to some of my friends. So I left Chicago, and I went back, I went to Rochester, New York, and I took a job as a news reporter covering <laughs> city council meetings, covering, you know, homicides and arsons, and it was tough, man. And uh, I wasn't very good at it, and... Uh, after about a year, I called Warner Saunders and I said, Warner, this is what I expected. I can't imagine doing this for the next 40 years. This is not who I am. And he said, Eric, who are you? And I said, I'm in sports, but I just I, it thought it's too hard to get into sports. And he said, follow your bliss. Follow your bliss, Eric. Mm. If you want a job, you find someone who's got the job that you want. You call them. You say, I can get to the job. I said, okay. So that moment, I hung up with Warner and I picked up the phone and I went to the old Yellow Pages. And I found the number for the minor league baseball team in Rochester, New York. And mm -hmm. I called up and I said, hey, partner, I live here in town. I want to do what you do. How did you get into the business? And he said, uh, well, you know, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Oh, by the way, I'm looking for a partner. Do you want to go have a beer tonight? And maybe we'll hit it off and maybe like, we can do something. Wow. So that night I went out and I had a, you know, some chicken wings and a beer with a guy named Glenn Gaffner. And uh, we tossed some trivia questions back and forth, and we seemed to enjoy each other's company. And he said, I can't give you much, but I can pay you $25 a game if you want to be my partner this year. And uh, I said, sure. And so I left my apartment. I moved into my buddy's uh, house. I lived on his floor because I couldn't afford any rent. And I spent the summer doing minor league baseball games with the Rochester Redlands in 1996. And that's the start of my sports career. When it ended, that season ended, uh, I was going to back to Chicago just to make some money, and I figured I'd get my job back doing some level at uh, Channel 5 or whatever. I thought Warner would kind of take care of me. Mm -hmm. And Warner said, I got something better for you. And uh, uh, Sports Channel Chicago was looking to hire someone, and I got hired like on the spot in September of 1996 to cover the Bears. And because I was in Chicago covering the Bears, the biggest thing, of course, was Michael Jordan and the Bulls, and we needed all hands on deck. And so while I was there, I said, Eric, the Bears aren't as important as Michael and Scotty. Get over here. So I started working and covering the Bears as Bulls as well. Okay. So, and you know what? You had a lot of patience and determination to get through some of those things because you've done, you did some work with the Schaumburg Flyers as well. I did. I did. Baseball team. So you worked with two or three different minor league baseball teams? I worked one year in Rochester with Rochester Red Wings. That was 1996. Right. And I moved to Chicago, and I did a lot of stuff. Uh, Sports Channel, which became Fox Sports, yep. um, as with the Bulls. But while I was doing that, I, I was a sideline reporter, and I was a pregame host, and I was a postgame host. And I knew I didn't want to do that forever. I knew I wanted to be a play-by-play -play guy. And I knew that I, – I was always thinking about what would make you happy, Eric, when you're 50. And I knew that I was, there was no one who's going to hire me to be a sideline reporter 
when I was 50, I just knew it. You know, you just, you, it's a younger person's gig. Now, Craig Sager kind of broke the mold. He did it, but there's only one Craig Sager. That's right. I just, I didn't feel confident. I said, I wanted to be the play-by-play guy because you look at play-by-play guys, and in our lifetime, they're all old, old guys. You know, they're like, yeah, they've been doing it for decades. Yeah. yeah. Old being play-by-play. Yeah. Yeah. So I said, that's what I want to do. And I thought that my personality fit that as well. So, even though I was doing sideline reporting for the Chicago Bulls and having an opportunity to work with the Cubs and the White Sox, um, I asked my bosses, I said, I want to do more play-by-play. Play. When they had none for me, I said, well, I want out of my contract then. And so when the Schaumburg Flyers started, they allowed me out of my contract for every summer, all four months of the summer, to go to Schaumburg Flyer baseball games. Wow. And so I spent three years, well, you got to remember, so during the winter months, I would travel with the Bulls on a team's plane and stay at, you know, five-star hotels. And then the season went in, and I would go over to the Schaumburg Flyers where we would bus everywhere, and we would stay two and a man in some motel on the side of the road in Bismarck, South Dakota. So I had two extremes in my life. But to be perfectly honest with you, the best part of my year was the summer when I was doing minor league baseball games because I was doing play-by-play, and I was getting closer to what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So you you were heavily involved in the glory days of the Bulls with Jordan and Pippen were running the show. Can you explain how important that time was for you in terms of, of, of getting into the business and making a relationship? Because I'm going to tie it all together, but so how important was that for you? Well, I wouldn't say I was heavily involved. I was there. Uh, the Bulls had already won four championships before I was even back in Chicago. You know? Okay. Okay. So uh, I always felt like I was the last man in the party, but I was definitely there. You know, I was the person who would interview Michael after every game, right in the middle of center court at the United Center, or on the road, I'd interview him in the hallway right outside the locker room, which was an absolute thrill. There wasn't anyone more professional. Um, than he was. For someone who was in such huge demand, mm-hmm. uh, Michael Jordan was uh, handled it with a grace like I can't imagine anyone else handling what he had on his plate. So the experience of being around Michael, uh, being around Scotty and, and Dennis Rodman and all those guys, yeah, it blew me away because of people who don't remember. We're talking 25 years ago. Whatever you think the Warriors have been over the last five years, you know, whatever you think about, you know, the New York Yankees with their G- – nothing. It all pales in comparison. What the Bulls were doing was like, – we were staying in the same hotel one time with, uh, with the Rolling Stones. Keith Richards, Mick Jagger, uh, they were all there at the Vancouver Four Seasons one time. Okay. But forget this. They were in the lobby holding court. I saw Keith Richards. He had like a crowd of like six or eight people around him. The minute Michael – walked around the hallway and started coming out of this area. All the Keith Richards was by himself. He might as well have been like the fifth grader. You know, no one cared about him at all. He was a little punk standing over in the corner, and Michael was everyone's interest. So being around that was super special and something that I'll never forget. Um, I, I never really took much advantage of it. I just kind of absorbed it and mm-hmm. was thrilled that I was there. And I was, wasn't the guy who was going all the parties and, I wasn't looking for access. I just was trying to do my job and do my thing. Well, it, and so you you were involved in the sideline reporting there, but Eric, I mean, you, you've done College World Series, softball, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you've done, you've called the 
Los Angeles Dodgers baseball. Yeah. You've done uh, Olympic sports. I did. Uh, I did the 2008 Beijing Olympics. I did baseball. So you did. You did. Ba- you did Olympics and baseball. Yeah. You've covered football for Big Ten Network and Fox. With you. Yes, they cover <laughs> basketball on Fox and Big Ten Network, and now you're covering the NBA. Did you ever think that you that your career would encompass so many different sports and opportunities? Uh, well, it's it's kind of by necessity. It's because when I went all in and said I wanted to do play by play, this was in 2002. In 2002, I was still doing sideline reporting, pre games, all that other kind of stuff, and I said I don't want to do this. I wanted to be play by play. And no one would hire me. You know, the phone would ring and people would say, hey, you know, we got an opportunity for you to sideline here or to host this. And I said, no, play by play. It's what I want to do. And the phone didn't ring. And I spent almost a full year without anyone offering me anything worthwhile to do play by play. And when it did start to trickle in, you know, people were asking me to do the first thing I got that actually the game changer was NFL Europe. NFL Europe was the thing back then. And they okay. I could send over to Berlin and and Amsterdam did games there. But when I came back, the things that I was getting was women's sports, girls' sports, high school sports, um, bench pressing competitions. Um, I was doing anything just to make sure that I could keep the dream alive. Yep. And I just, I was not going to be choosy. You know, if someone was offering me money to do play-by-play of something that had a ball and they were keeping score, I was going to do it. And that's how I kind of stumbled into the world of women's softball, which I've adored and it's been great to me and I've had a great relationship with. Um, I just didn't say no, you know, because to me, competition is competition. And I don't care if you're a 15-year-old girl playing high school basketball at two, two topless, you know. If, if you're keeping score, I want to be there and talking about it. That's right. And that's kind of the way that I felt. And because of that, I, I was able to work all four seasons. You know, I was able to work in the spring during the summer, during the fall, and during the winter because I could do any single sport. And that's helped me because there's not a lot of guys who have done Major League Baseball and the NBA. You know, it's for some reason it's you got NBA guys and you got baseball guys. So I got lucky to be in both worlds. And, you know, when – I want to be honest with you, bro, because my dad is a Los Angeles Dodgers fanatic. And mm-hmm. so when you got the opportunity to call Dodgers games, man – he was so happy for you, ah. happy for the Dodgers situation. How was that? I mean, because you and I, man, we're, we're, you know, we're old school. Baseball means a lot to us. Right. It means a lot to me. How was it to have that opportunity to call those Dodgers games? Uh, I told you before, I'm a big Cleveland Indians guy. The Indians are who I am. But because I was an Indians fan and the Indians were just so bad back in the 70s, um, one of the teams that were, became my enemy – um, was the Dodgers, or was the, the Yankees. And mm-hmm. so the Yankees back in 77 and 78 would play the Dodgers um, in the World Series back-to-back years. And I became a huge Dodger fan because they were playing the Yankees. I needed them to beat the Yankees. I hate the Yankees. The Yankees beat the Indians. So I knew, you know, Dusty Baker and Reggie Smith and Steve Garvey and Ron Say and, you know, Kenny Landro and Davey Lopes and all that. So I was a huge Dodger fan. If I wasn't an Indians guy, it was a Dodger. And you always kind of romanticize about the Dodgers, too, because they play with palm trees. Sure. Beautiful Chavez, Dodgers. Chavez Ravine. Oh, and, yeah. the, and the, the script Dodgers, it's at such an angle. It's perfectly placed on the uniforms. The uniforms have never changed. 
And if you go back in history, if you think about Roy Campanella and, you know, Joe Black and Don Newcomb yep. and Jackie Robinson, the people of color, you know, the Dodgers mean something even more. That's right. So I've always been a Dodger fan at the core. And uh, getting an opportunity to do Major League Baseball was awesome. And getting an opportunity to work for the Dodgers is, you know, you got the Yankees. I'll give them. They're above them. Yep. And then maybe the Red Sox and the Cubs are kind of on the same plane as the Dodgers. But the Dodgers are one of the preeminent organizations in all of sports. Agreed. Start with that team. It's not like I was, you know, no, no problem. I apologize. I can't see you wrong. This is the Kansas City Royals. You know, this is royalty of Major League Baseball. And to get an opportunity to do five seasons with them was pretty cool. That's tremendous, man. And so now you you kind of transition and you're doing uh, Big Ten Network, uh, Fox stuff during the fall and winter, and you're doing the Dodgers in the summer. And then you get this opportunity. Uh, you know, you were telling me about it. And all by the way, uh, Eric and I were uh, partners with uh, WNBA Chicago Sky, which I give it up to the Chicago love. Sky. Give I, it up to the Chicago Sky. I absolutely love that gig, man. Ellie Quigley. I'm telling you, Slooting. Yeah, man. I love I love the Sky. I love calling the games with you. So, you know, we're we're sitting there, and you're talking to me, and you give me a heads up that uh, there may be an NBA opportunity that took place. Why don't you walk our viewers through? how all that transpired and how that came about? Well, this was 2015, and uh, in the NBA, it's very rare when you get a change as a play-by-play announcer, because for some reason, they, these guys, and I say guys, because literally it is all men, um, they stay seemingly for decades. And it, sometimes when there is a job opening, really it's not even a job opening because they've got someone waiting in the wings, or maybe they're gonna move the, uh, the radio announcer over to TV or maybe someone who's been involved in broadcast some other way as the sideline reporter or the, the preview host is going to get elevated. Sure. So when you actually find out that there is a job that is truly open and they're really looking for uh, an announcer and they're going to go on a nationwide search to find that announcer, you get excited for someone like me because that's a real opportunity. Sure. And these things happen during the spring and in the summer. And of course we're working doing Chicago sky games together and I, I, my agent called me up and said, Eric, the Charlotte Hornets are looking for an announcer. Would you be interested in doing the job if for some reason it became you know, something that they wanted you as well? And I said, my God, I would do any NBA team, no matter where, if, if that NBA team in Timbuktu, I would do it. You know, the NBA is the NBA. There's only 30 of those kids. Yeah. And uh, so they flew me down, and I said to myself, you know what, Michael Jordan owns that team. You know, And I was not never buddy-buddy with Michael. You know, not in the least, you know. I treated him with respect and professionalism, but that was it. You know, I would not say that, you know, we were buddies. Yeah, you're more buddies than I am. So when I went down in that room and I auditioned, I didn't audition, but I just interviewed, and I knew the biggest thing that I did when I got in the room was I had to I, – I played up the 20 years before. I was the sideline reporter for Michael Jordan. I knew Michael back then, big fan of Michael Jordan, da-da-da-da-da. And I just knew that – there was no one in the world who had the resume that I had, who was as good as what I am, who was going to look for that job. And I just, I, I just knew it. I went back and I saw you the next day. And I said, Bardo, man. I, and I usually don't, don't talk much about that kind of stuff. And I said, Bardo, I think this is going to happen. I'm so excited. And it did happen. So yeah. very well, true. It was tremendous, man, because, you know, for me, having a partner 
that gets a call to the NBA like that, I mean, we're, we're on a high level, right? I mean, you were on the highest level with the Dodgers, but we're on a high level in terms of Big Ten Network and Fox. But I, I almost think that the NBA, when you get one of those jobs, is so coveted and the fact that Michael Jordan and your relationship from 20 years before played into you getting this opportunity, I mean, that, that had to feel great, didn't it? That's what it was. You know, it's, I, I had no doubt because Michael's such a hands-on guy and it's his organization and he gets a chance to get final say on everything. And he comes from a loyal place. You know, he was with the Chicago Bulls and the Bulls for many, many years or have been seen as a loyal organization where they, they take time with their people and they, they build their people and they work with their people. And I was just appreciative of the fact that, you know, I, Michael remembered me from when I was a kid and I was trying to do my work to the best of my ability. And like I said, you know, there's a lot of people who asked him for things over the years. And a lot of people needed to, you know, I was just happy to do my job and move forward, you know, and sure. the fact that you remember my professionalism, um, that, that meant a lot to me, you know. I'm not looking for a new friend. He's not looking for a new friend. But I'm thrilled the fact that he remembers that I was a professional. That's really what I wanted at the end of the day. And see, so there's a good lesson in that because people are always watching. You never know who's watching your performance, your body language, and how you treat people. And I can honestly say that Eric is always prepared, always energetic, loves the job that he's doing, and he treats people the right way. I'll, I'll share a story. <laughs> I had a little mentee with me one time uh, that was at the game. And this young man uh, really wanted to get into the business and doing his thing. And he kept, he kept putting his face in the phone during the game. And Eric, being the gentleman that he is, he, he, he taps me on the shoulder. He says, Stephen, do you mind if I say something to Kyle? Because uh, I could tell Eric was agitated. And I said, I said, Eric, get in his ass, seriously. And so Eric was very professional. But he said, Kyle, the game is out here. Get off your phone. You can't do anything on your phone while the action is going. Pay attention to the action that you can get on your phone afterwards. And I loved it because I love when adults getting uh, <laughs> young people behind. We all needed it, right? Uh -huh. We're no different, Eric. We, we needed that reprimand. We needed that uh, reminder of why you're here. And I think that um, that was a, a, a tremendous message for Kyle, and I hope – I know he's in college now doing his thing, but I hope that it resonates. But it was very – I loved it because it showed me, Eric, that you, one, you care about young people, but you're also about your professionalism. And you, there was something about that situation. Do you remember that situation? I do remember that situation. You were always – obviously, you know, we talked earlier about Warner Saunders. You know, don't just climb over the fence, bring someone with you. You've always practiced that since the day that I first met you, and I always really respect you uh, because of that. And – to have access to someone like yourself, to have access to, to a great event like we did with the Chicago Sky and the WNBA, and to not take advantage of it, and to not just say, you know, this is going to be the most important thing in my life, sitting two hours next to Stephen Bardo and two hours and watching the best women in the world play basketball, that's something that I just felt like he needed to understand. It's like, hey, you know, this is, this is it, you know? Everything else can wait. This is your life now. This could be your life in the future. Take advantage of it. And even if you're not the smartest guy in the room, as long as you pretend like you're paying attention, to me that counts for something, you know? I, I graduated college because of that, you know? Sometimes I had no clue what was going on, but you show up to class, you pretend like you're interested, and you move on. You know, that's kind of the way the world runs. That's right.
No, it was, it was a great lesson. I was so glad that you were able to impart that on him. And, uh, you know, for us, trying to pull these youngsters like Warner Saunders, who, uh, you know, was, is a giant of a man. For those that don't know, Warner Saunders was the lead news anchor uh, for NBC Chicago for decades, Eric. Is that right? Decades, no doubt about it. Since probably early 80s. 25, probably. And he was always reaching back, always reaching back, trying to help people, always had a kind word for somebody. He just a, he, he's a, a guy that had great stature. He's about 6'3", 6'4". Isn't that right, Eric? He's a big man, big man, 6'6", yes. six, six maybe. He played the Harlem Globetrotter for a spell back in the day. That's right. So he was a hooper, but he, he was just this distinguished gentleman. And, you know, him reaching back is something that, you know, obviously for Eric and I is very important. Um, you know, Eric, I'm going to transition a little bit as we, we're, we're wrapping up here a little bit. I've got a few more questions. I'm curious to see what you think about the way the game in the NBA is played now compared to what it was maybe 15, 20 years ago. It's all pace and space right now. It seems like every team yeah. runs almost the exact same thing as compared to when we were coming up, Cleveland had a certain style. Utah had the pick and roll. Denver would get up and down. The Lakers had the showtime. The Celtics had a situation that they would play. The Pistons were, had a different style. What, can you talk about the difference in the way the game is played uh, in today's NBA? I, you know what? It's kind of strange, and I know this is college, but I was watching a couple of days ago on CBS in lieu of the NCAA tournament. They had um, the championship game from 82 between Patrick Ewing's Georgetown Hoyas and Michael Jordan, Sam Perkins, uh, James Worthy's North Carolina Tar Heels. Mm-hmm. And it was almost unwatchable, man. Like, guys, he went a, a wide-open 16-footer. And this would be a pump fake and pass it, pump fake and pass it. I just, come on. I think the three-pointer has just absolutely it's, – it's basketball, looking back, is unwatchable. Basketball now, I think, is – you see the athleticism of the, the players. You know, you see just the otherworldness of their skill level. And to me, like you, Stephen, I would have loved to see you and the flying Illini play – the way they play now with a wide open floor, you know, mm-hmm. Nick Anderson bombing from three, you know, you and Kendall from the wings with all this open spot and running and dunking, you know, it would have been so much fun as opposed to keep packing it in and, and worrying about who's got the better 12 footer. Mm-hmm. I love the way the NBA is played now. I, I just, it, it, sometimes it's frustrating. You know, I don't necessarily love, uh, to me, Houston maybe is a little bit overboard. You know, I do think there is. I agree. There is agree. something, you know, in in an elbow jumper. Every once in a while, you can do that. There are nothing but threes and layups. Yeah. Um, but I think for the most part, I, I love games that are played in the 115s to the 120s. I think there's enough scoring. Um, I think there's enough dunking. I think that there's enough. I can't do it. That makes you happy. And it's one of those things where that's one of the reasons why I love women's softball. Believe it or not, women's softball has got that, that huge I can't do it factor. You know, when guys watch women's softball and they see some woman throw it 75 miles an hour, like, you know, I can't throw that. And then when someone hits it, they say, I can't hit that, you know? So I, that's what makes sports sometimes really cool. And when you watch, like, swimming, say what you want about swimming, there's, there's never that I can't do it factor. People are like, well, if I really tried hard enough, maybe I could probably, you know, get faster and maybe now. But with the NBA, the way that they play nowadays, there's that I can't do it factor, just because it's all about above the rim, 
and from 35 feet away, you know, these huge long shots, the crisp passes. I'm sold. It's not just because I'm in the NBA. I just, I think it's a good brand of basketball. And I think with some tweaks, which I think the NBA will do in the years to come, Mm -hmm. like maybe that Elam ending that we saw at the end of the All-Star game, you know, maybe some different ways to kind of end the game, maybe where we don't have as much stoppage or as much fouls or we figure out a different way. The NBA has been very um, open to changes for the betterment of the league. I, I think the league right now is hot, and I think it's going to get even better. I agree. And your, your color uh, analyst is Dale Curry, correct? Yeah. How, how is that uh, working with Dale Curry, and now he's got not one but two sons who are balling out of control in the NBA? How, how is that working with Dale? It's pretty cool. He um, – you know, he welcomed me from the get-go. I've been with him five years, and he's just an absolute gentleman. Um, it's hard to believe, but he is the Hornets' all-time leader in two categories, two-point field goals made and turnovers. Yeah, believe it. One of the all-time greatest shooters. Because he played back in your era, Stephen, when they oh, didn't understand that's right. more than two. That's right. So that's right. He, he, uh, actually, when he retired, he was eighth all-time in three-pointers made. He's now like 62nd. Just shows you how the game has changed. Yeah. Um, but learning the game through his eyes and learning shooting and form and rhythm through his eyes with the way that he's able to break down and critique ball players, I think is really kind of cool. Um, and obviously his history here in Charlotte speaks for itself. And so helping me get acclimated and just kind of become a, a Charlatan has been really cool with him in my by my side. For you youngsters that don't uh, know who Dale Curry is, that's uh, Steph Curry's father. So when you watch Steph Curry play, in my opinion, Steph's handle was better than Dale. Oh. But in terms of the pure, this right here, Dale Curry was one of the – he's top five in my book ever. In terms of like, the book of it or in terms of the result? In terms of result, Eric, I mean – he would get it up so fast in the shooting pocket and get it off so quickly because mm-hmm. he didn't jump a lot. But he what's Dale? Six 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 seven? I think six five six six. Yep. Six five six six. So he's got good size. He could get it off quickly. He didn't jump a lot. Smooth. Huh? He was very smooth. Oh, very very smooth. Great great shooter. And so when you see Seth and Steph today, they're taking after their father. Now they're taking it to the next level. Obviously, their handles. They can get where they want to on the floor. They're very creative, but their dad was a sharpshooter, and I know Dale a little bit, uh, a, a gentleman, a great guy, um, you know, a man of faith. And I know you were telling me a lot of times where he'll just go back to his room and watch his sons play. It's almost like he gets done with the game, and they're, they're on the West Coast. You guys are typically on the East Coast, so he gets a chance to watch his sons. Is, does he, is he kind of uh, giddy sometimes before being able to watch them play? It's pretty cool. It's uh, he's no matter what he's doing, he drops everything, and he will watch either one of his sons when they're playing That's at cool. home. He's got multiple TVs set up, and it could be game number thirty-seven out of eighty-two. It could be whatever Dallas against Atlanta, and he will make sure that he will watch the entire forty-eight minutes. It is it's amazing, and he did the same thing for Sedale. He's got a daughter who played volleyball at Elon. Oh, okay, not too far away from Charlotte. Okay. And never missed the game, was always there. And that's something that's pretty cool as, you know, a father of two young daughters. Um, he, he set the bar pretty high, but I'm going to try and follow him in that regard as well. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. 
any funny stories about being in the Charlotte organization and you know you coming in and now you're your mainstay but is there any kind of uh, funny stories that you can share with us well what I will say because this needs to be said is you and I have been in this business you know for 25 years Stephen and you and I have worked together and we're the same age and we both have the same experience of being young pups and now kind of being in the middle of the pack yeah there's one thing about having your predecessor you know show appreciation and sometimes that happens and sometimes it doesn't. I came here to Charlotte and there was a guy named Steve Martin who was truly the only person that Hornets fans had ever heard call a game. Mm-hmm. Steve Martin was the voice when they originally started in 1988. And uh, he actually went with the team when they were down in New Orleans for a handful of years. Um, he was the TV guy, he was a radio guy. One year actually was the PA announcer. Mm-hmm. So Steve Martin was huge for 30 years doing the Hornets games. When I came in, um, Steve moved from TV to radio, and for three years, he was the radio announcer when I was the TV announcer, and everywhere that he went, and remember, he couldn't listen to me, because when I'm on the air, he was on the air, but everyone would say, what do you think about the new announcer, and he goes, I love Eric, Eric's a great guy, Eric is going to be sensational, he's got everything that we want, da-da-da-da-da, now remember, he'd never heard me, and he just didn't have to say that, you know, mm-hmm. and he did, and my transition from Chicago to here, you know, when no one knew who I was, and people didn't understand my style because I sounded differently than Steve. But the fact that he accepted me and, and made it clear that I was part of the organization and I should be accepted made my path so much easier. And I tip my cap to him and forever thankful for him kind of greasing the skids and allowing me to at least try and get a foothold here in Charlotte. Oh, man. That's so not often. So when it does happen, it needs to be acknowledged. He was an absolute wonder in terms of the welcome that he gave to me. Oh, that's wonderful. Because, you know, Eric, in these competitive situations, typically that doesn't happen. So No, no, no. That says a lot about that man's character, for sure. So our, our viewers, where can they find you on social media? Where can they follow you? <laughs> this is it, man. I stay away from social media, man. Huh? You don't have a you don't have one social media account here. I do not. I do not. My friends know how to find me. They, they hit me up. They they send me text messages. I, text messages and email and snail mail. That's the way I operate. I love it. No, I love it. I love it. I'll, I'll be honest with you, Stephen. It's it's by design. You know, I uh, I got into this business because I felt like I had a voice. Like I wanted to say something to people, and I still do. And sometimes I get feedback, and I was on Twitter, and I, you know, I, and sometimes that feedback is not creative. It doesn't, it doesn't help me get where I want to go. It, 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 it makes me self-edit sometimes. You know, if there's someone out there that tells me, "Oh, Eric, I don't like you when you do this," or "Eric, this bothers me when you do this," or "Eric, I think you suck when you do this," I don't want that thought in my head. You know, and I know you're a you're a Division One athlete. You played in the NBA. You've done a lot of different things, Stephen. You obviously got a different brain than I have. Maybe you have the competitive edge that I don't. But I don't need someone else's thoughts coming in my head. I'm good giving it out. I don't necessarily like having feedback coming in. So that's just the way that I chose to do business. No, see, I think that's smart, Eric, because Twitter, to me, could be utilized for, for good, but a lot of times it's not. It's very negative. And the feedback that you get on Twitter is from some dope sitting at home that can't run and chew gum at the same time but have a, a critique about your work. And so I, I, I agree with you on that. I, I utilize Twitter for business purposes, as you know, 
because I've gotten in trouble on Twitter as well, running my damn mouth. But uh, I, I love that, that you uh, are not on social media. I mean, that, that makes you stand out and uh, makes you one of a kind, like you've always been to me. So I really appreciate this, Eric. You taking the time out, man. Um, do you have any sense of when the NBA might return? Yes. My only sense is I think it is going to return. I think that the, uh, I think that there is going to be obviously it all depends on what happens, you know, globally. And obviously we need everyone to get healthy and put ourselves in, in good positions. Um, but I, I know that the NBA desperately wants to finish off this year, um, and that's something we can cross our fingers for. And I, I think it would be a really tough pill to swallow if the regular season and the postseason just ended. And uh, we had to kind of start forward, you know, eight months from now without ever coming to any kind of conclusion this year. Um, I don't know what it's going to look like, um, but I think that the NBA is going to try and move heaven and earth to get games played to finish off the 1920 season. So um, it's something that we can look forward to. Okay. Well said, my man. Well, Eric, thanks so much for joining us, man. I really appreciate it. Uh, we'll have to uh, – Maybe check in with you a little bit later this summer once once the NBA is uh, back up and running. All right, let me know next time this thing's going to be on camera. I didn't realize it, man. I would address the occasion. <laughs> <laughs> That's Eric Collins. I'm Stephen Barlow. That'll do it for this edition of Bartle Breakdown. Make sure you come back to the page because we'll have interviews like this. I'll be going live, and we're going to get through this quarantine, uh, this uh, coronavirus kind of shelter in together. So take care, be safe, do the safety protocols, and check in on those loved ones that might maybe by themselves uh, because we all need connection during this time. Until next time, we'll see you. Peace.